following message is from Narrative Church, a Lutheran church located in Williamson County, Texas. For more information, go to www.narrative.church. This time we continue with our readings for this morning. Now, our readings have been following what we call the pericopes, which is just a super fancy word to say readings or assigned readings. Um, but it is what happens uh, over the life of Jesus. These pericopes are taken, and the ones we're reading are a three-year rotation. And through the year, you follow the whole life of Jesus. And so we're using these pericopes in Lent to see his way, to see the way that he's calling. So our readings this morning begin in the book of Numbers. From Numbers chapter 21. From Mount Hor, they, the people of Israel, set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And then from the book of John chapter three, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this sermon series, we've talked a lot about the way of Jesus, the things he does that we follow him in. We've talked about um, sacrifice. We've talked about foolishness. We've talked about all kinds of different things. But this morning, I want to talk about the way of the Messiah. That as Jesus comes, as he enters into the world, there is this way that he follows that is his. That it is his purpose and his mission. And the way of the Messiah is just that. It is his way. 
It is the way laid out before him. So this idea of Messiah is one that comes from Scripture, but in our modern day vernacular kind of comes with some different ideas in it. You know, we talk about a Messiah complex, that someone walks into a room and they figure, I got to take care of everything. Um, We see different tropes of this in our art, in our media. We see it often coming through in in movies and plays and in those kinds of things, TV shows. And it's a word we often use in the church. That if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've heard Messiah spoken. So of course, as the great biblical scholar and uh, pastor that I am, I quickly hopped on my online biblical study tool to just see how many times Messiah shows up in scriptures, because surely it must be there more than two times. It's two times. We use this word Messiah so often, but in the English Standard Version, the the translation version we use, Messiah is only translated twice, both in the book of John. So here's the first. So the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So Jesus is encountering a woman and asking her about her faith, about all these things. And, well, I know the Messiah is coming. Now, here's the second place it's translated. In John 1, when um, we get uh, disciples coming to Jesus, They come to their brothers and he said, I first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Those are the two places that Messiah directly translated from its Greek to what we know in English. And the Greek word here is the word Messiahs. So this idea of Messiah, it's not just the English translation. It only shows up these two times in the book of John. But notice that each time it immediately makes a comparison. The Messiah, who is the Christ. So in Greek, this would be Christos. Now that word shows up a whole lot more. And so what we see is that there's this connection between Messiah and Christ. So what does that mean? That as we talk about the Messiah, where where does that come into play? Well, if you look at the Greek word here, Messiah, there's actually a Hebrew root to it, which is Meshach, which shows up a ton in the Old Testament, but never translated as Messiah. Instead, you often see it translated as the anointed one. And so what we get is this connotation with Messiah, with Christ, of the anointed one. Now we, we talk about that a lot. Anointed one is not something that's foreign to us. But I think a scriptural understanding of anointed one helps us understand what's happening here. That the anointed one, it's often talking about Uh, three different types of people. 
You have the anointed one, and, and specifically this Meshayach, where it shows up often is the anointed priest, the intercessor between us and God, the high priest who has been anointed, chosen for that role. But also you look in the book of Samuel, when David is called in from the fields, that as Samuel is looking for the next king of Israel, and he's going down the list of these sons, and the runt of the litter is still out in the fields because they thought it can't be him, and he's brought in, Samuel anoints him as king. He pours oil over his head. And finally, we see anointing show up when it talks about the prophets, that the prophets of God are chosen and given a mission. They are anointed to be sent out. And oftentimes we'll talk about Jesus, that he is prophet, priest, and king. That each of these roles in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king were ones chosen by God, but given specific missions. The priest would be the one who comes in and is the intermediary between God and his people. The king is the one who rules over the people of God. Who's there to guard and protect them. And then the prophet is the one who calls them back to God. When they wander astray, he is the one who says, no, return to the ways of the Lord. So the anointed and the chosen one is the one who calls back the people who guards and protects them, who's the intermediary between God and man. Now, what happens is in the Old Testament, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there comes to be this idea of the Messiah that's very different because it becomes a very worldly-based thing because what happens is the people come out of Egypt, they wander in the wilderness, but then they take the promised land. They come into the land, this land flowing with milk and honey, and it becomes theirs, and they establish a nation. Now God tells them, listen, I will be your king and you will be my people. And that lasts for about five minutes. And then they go, Lord, we don't, we don't want you as king, we want a king. Everybody else has a king that they can look at. We want a king. So God says, okay, here you go. And they get Saul and David and Solomon and this long line of kings that establish an Israelite empire. Because if you look at this map of ancient Israel, what you see is at the top, you get into uh, what we would now know as, um, uh, as modern-day Turkey, as we kind of come up to that curve there. And then down below, you have the um, headwaters of the Nile. You have all of those um, Egyptian empire places. And especially you talk about in the Old Testament, the cedars of Lebanon, which were these great trees that were used um, for building, for decoration, for all of those things. To get anything between these massive empires, 
and not have to travel through a wasteland, you followed the roads along the Mediterranean through Israel. And so for a time, there is this Israelite empire that rules this area, and it's very wealthy. It's very well taken care of. You see David longing to build the temple. God doesn't allow him to do it. He waits for Solomon. But then when Solomon builds the temple, it is something of renown because there is great power and wealth in this empire. But what happens is the people keep turning from God. And what God has told them is he said, this is our covenant. If you turn from me, things are going to happen. And so what we get is a series of invasions that as the people turn from God, as their kings and queens become worse and worse, they are invaded. And so you have this line of invasions. In 722, it's Assyria. In 605, it's Babylon. And remember, we're B.C., so we count down. So Assyria, Babylon. Then Persia comes in, doesn't even capture Israel. Persia just takes Babylon, so they get all of Babylon's conquerings. Well, then the Persian Empire falls to Alexander the Great. Now, what Alexander the Great does is he pushes Greek culture wherever he conquers. So if you ever wonder why a group of Jewish people in Israel would write the New Testament in Greek, not Hebrew or Latin, because then they'll be invaded by Rome, it's because when Alexander the Great comes in, he, he does what we call, he Hellenizes, he Greekifies everything he takes control of. So there is one language that everyone knows, and it's Greek. So that's why the New Testament is written in Greek. It's because it's a language that everyone would know. So after Alexander the Great, the Romans come in, and Judah in 63 BC becomes a Roman territory. And so since 722 until 63 AD, or BC, and then even after that, the people of Israel have been under the heel of others. They are in the land that is promised for them, but they have been exiled at points. Their cities have been destroyed and looted. Their people have been spread across differing empires. So when they are looking for the Messiah... They are looking to the promise of the land and they are saying someday the Messiah will come and kick out the invaders and once again the land that belongs to us will return. God promised us this land and it will come back to us. And so this idea of the Messiah was that he was an earthly leader who would come in and return the nation to what it had once been. So when Jesus ends up on the scene and he's going around and people start confessing him as the Messiah or as the Christ, 
but his message is to love your enemies. There is pushback on that because people go, no, 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 no. The Messiah is supposed to come here and take care of our enemies, to kick them out, to get rid of them. Not to come and play nice. And so Jesus takes the way of the Messiah and starts talking about it in light of his kingdom, not the land. Because even while the people weren't wandering in the wilderness like they had been before they came into the promised land, they were in another wilderness, even in their own country. In our readings this morning, we come across what I would say is the most famous verse in Scripture, John 3.16. But did you notice what happened in John 3.14 and 15 this morning? In these pieces of Scripture, Jesus steps in and is talking to a man named Nicodemus. So Nicodemus was a studied man of the word and of the law. And he comes to Jesus at night and he asks him, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus goes, oh, this is great. You just got to be born again. And Nicodemus is so literal, he goes, "Uh, uh, tell me how to do that. Like, I must be born of my mother again. And Jesus is like, no, stop. That's not what I'm talking about. He's trying to reveal to him the way of the Messiah. And we have this story we read from Numbers today of Moses and the people of Israel. And what happens with Moses and the people of Israel is there were these snakes, these fiery serpents, that they are wandering in the wilderness, they complaining. And then these fiery serpents come and bite them, and they're basically dying. And they return to the Lord, and the Lord says, you know, raise up this fiery snake of bronze, and when you look on it, you'll be saved. And so in John 3, 14 and 15, Jesus, who knows this man, will understand what he's referring to, says, just like the snake had to be raised up, so too must the Son of Man. And what Jesus is saying is the way of the Messiah is a way of sacrifice, not of conquering. That the Son of Man will be lifted up. And we know from where we read the Son of Man will be lifted up on a cross. That the way of the Messiah is different than everyone expected. So we see Jesus start explaining that the way of prophet, priest, and king is not the way people expected it to be. He'll go on to say, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, my followers would be fighting for me right now. The prophet, priest, and king that we need is the one who steps in to 
our places of sin to where we fall short. That when we wander in the wilderness, we can trust that all we have to do is look up to see Him. If you were to ask me, well, what's it like to wander in the wilderness? Well, let me tell you. It's like a year ago, last Friday, getting a phone call from Refugia, who's the head custodian at Hopewell, and she calls me and says, we just found out no one's going to be allowed on campus over spring break. We don't know when we're coming back. If you want to come up here and grab some of your stuff, we just don't know what's going to happen. So it's Matt and I hopping in our cars, running up there, pulling everything out of the shed, going, what do we need and what can we leave behind in a matter of an hour and a half? Wandering in the wilderness is saying, hey, are we online this week? I don't know. Is it going to rain? Wandering in the wilderness is looking and saying, I miss my family. I miss hugging people. I miss hanging out. It's missing graduations and birthdays and births. It's loved ones passing away when all we can do is look on through a window or through FaceTime. Wildernesses come and go in our lives, but right now we know that we are all in one. This last year has been a year of wilderness that we've all experienced on different levels. And I think our temptation can be to look and say, once we get out of the wilderness and everything's made right, it'll all be okay. But look at what happens to the people of Israel. They get so focused on the wilderness and they're looking forward to the land that has been promised them that when they get to the land, they lose sight of the Lord. That he promised them a land to prosper them and grow them, but the purpose was always that he would do that to bring the Messiah. And what they missed was in the midst of their wanderings, in the midst of the promised land, that God was with them as they were. These were people who saw a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, who had crossed the Red Sea, parted, and had the audacity to be like, you know what was better? Egypt. You know what? We, we ate better food there. That's what I love about this Numbers passage. It's not that we don't have food. It's that, Lord, I don't like what you made for dinner. Right? Like, that's the issue. It's not that the Lord wasn't providing for them. It was this grumbling of what he had given them. And then when they get into the land, when they finally make it to that place, after God has shown them consistently that He is for them, they still look to the other nations instead of to God. 
And I'll tell you what, I am that person. I have seen God over the past year in ways I cannot explain. And I have also been the person that says, Lord, do you even care about me? And it's like he's right after he's cared for me. Like right after he's shown himself when he doesn't need to. And I'm just glad I'm on this side of the new covenant so God's not like hot snakes, right? Like, because that would be me. I would be the one who would look and say, Lord, I don't like what you made for dinner. Can we try a chicken fried steak tonight? In Egypt, we had chicken fried steak. There's temptation for us that when we're in the wilderness, all we're looking towards is, Lord, the promised land is ahead of us. And if you think as your pastor, I haven't felt that in very real ways, because I look, I am blessed that you're all here this morning. I am blessed that we have people online this morning. We are blessed to be in this community center. But I'm looking ahead going, Lord, I know you've prepared something even greater for us down the road. That wherever we physically get to call home next, you have prepared it for us. And that's my prayer is that you are preparing a place for us. And you better believe six months into that place, I'm going to look back and be like, yeah, but in the community center. Because that's our temptation as humans. The fancy word for it is repristination, which basically just is saying what we used to have is better than what we have now. But you see, prophet, priest, and king, Jesus who comes for us, comes for us when we are in the wilderness. He comes for us when we are in the land and he comes for us for what is beyond. The way of the Messiah is that whether we are in the wilderness being attacked and we can look up to find our salvation, he is there. It is when we are in the land and the temple is built and we can look and we can say, this is where the Lord dwells. In the wilderness and in the promise, Jesus is there. That is what he is telling these people in the way of the Messiah. He's saying, I have to be raised up because that is the only place you will find salvation. He goes from referring to the, as the snake is raised up, so must the Son of Man. And then he says, for God so loved the world. that the Son of Man would be raised up for us. The way of the Messiah is the prophet, priest, and king. Not the one we want, but the one we need. Not the genie who grants us everything we want, who gives us earthly possession and pleasure, but instead, the prophet, priest, and king who looks and says, my kingdom is so much greater than you could ever ask or imagine. And whether you are in the wilderness or in the land, whether you are wandering or living in my promises, look up to me. Because men and women, humanity around the world, loves darkness more than light. But we know also that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. 
the good news of the way of the Messiah is there's only one thing we have to do. Whether we're wandering or whether we're home, all we have to do is look up. The good news of the Messiah for us is that in our heartache, in our brokenness, in our darkness, the light shines through. And all we have to do is look up. I want to end this sermon with the psalm that was assigned to read this morning, which is Psalm 107. Because I think it gives us an example of what we're called to do as the people of God. Would you read this psalm with me? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way until they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things." Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I love that. That's just amazing poetry. You don't want to know what it looks like to look up? First, it's just looking upon the Savior, what Jesus has done. But then it's giving thanks for His steadfast love. And then it's us, as the redeemed people of God, saying so. Wherever you're wandering right now, know that first of all, you have a church that wanders with you. That as we see what's behind the next step of this pandemic, we do it together because we have a Savior who's with us. Let's pray. Lord, we are your people. Let us not lose sight, whether in the wilderness or in the land, that we have a good prophet, priest, and king. Lord, a king who would guide us and protect us, who would nourish our soul. A priest who would connect us to God, that we are not alone. A prophet who reminds us of his ways. Lord, let us rejoice in the way of the Messiah. In your Son, Jesus' name, amen.